Welcome to Shetland with Laurie, a podcast dedicated to Shetland, the place and the people, with me, Laurie Goodland, a writer and tour guide based at 60 degrees north. The Shetland with Laurie podcast is for people who have visited Shetland, or who would like to visit, or for those who would just like to know a little bit more about life here. So welcome, I'm so glad you're here. Hello and welcome to episode 9 of the Shetland with Laurie podcast. Where are the weeks going just now? I can't believe that we're well into November, but there you go. So before we start, I just wanted to say a massive thank you to everyone who has listened, subscribed, shared and left me feedback. It would be a complete lie if I were to say that I'd not been completely blown away by your support and your encouragement, so thank you. Now, on today's show, it's uh, another solo show, so apologies, you're stuck with me again. But today I'm delving into our folklore and some of the mythical creatures that inhabit it. So without any further ado, let's dive right in. Folklore played a huge part of Shetland society and culture right up until fairly recent times. And many of the folktales have been written down and although many of these have now been forgotten, they can still be found in books and literature of the islands. The dramatic coastline and moorland expanses have given rise to a rich and deep-rooted culture of folklore, superstition and deeply embedded traditions. In the past, education, literature and access to news was limited, even within the Isles, and travel for pleasure was almost unheard of, and a venture out into the neighbouring parish or district was something of a novelty. Friends and neighbours, particularly at this time of the year as we kind of approach winter, would gather together beside the fireside and share stories and tales of the past to occupy the long, dark winter nights. This podcast today will explore some of these stories and we'll meet some of the mythical creatures that inhabit the islands. One of the most common, captivating and best-loved tales from Shetland's folklore are those associated with trows or little people, who live in the hills. These hill folk are much revered across the isles, and even today they appear in stories and popular culture. Trows are a feature of Shetland folklore. They're creatures similar to humans, but smaller and much uglier, who live in the hills, particularly in the heathery peatlands, well inland, away from the sea. And they would only come out at night to work mischief in the human world. If a trow was to get caught out by the rising sun, it would inevitably turn to stone before it was able to get back to its underground lair. And many of Shetland's standing stones are said to be those of petrified trows. Also, many of the place names in Shetland indicate areas associated with the trow. There's Trollydale, Trolligert, and Trollhuland. There are also plants that have trowy names. Ferns are known as trowy cairds, heathrush is the trow boora, and foxglove is a trowy glove or glove. And the trows themselves were often named. Popular names include Pisterliti, Truncherface, Terry Mittens, and Tivla. Trows are invisible to most people, but some people 
could see them and others could seek help to see them. A man in Papastour, which is an island off Shetland's west coast, was able to see the trows dancing in front of his house by holding his wife's hand or placing his foot over hers. And trows are said to have particularly loved fiddle music and much of our traditional music is thought to have been learned from the trows and the people who were taken by them or who heard the music emitting from the underground nows. And that's a, a small hill or a knoll. Trows are said to have taken fiddlers on many an occasion, usually when the person was travelling to or from a musical engagement. That was when they were in the most danger of being taken by the trow, and those in particular who were attending a wedding. Trows are often said to have appeared in front of them and taken them away to play at a trowy gathering. The musician would sometimes be gone for days, months, years or even decades and, on returning, would believe that their absence had been no more than a few short hours. They may return home with no idea of the passing of time to find that a generation or more had passed. Some fiddlers were sworn to secrecy not to divulge their whereabouts to the human world. Many of them would enjoy considerable good fortune as a result with crops flourishing, livestock numbers growing, and a good fortune at the fishing. However, if they spoke of the trows, this fortune would be revoked, and they would almost certainly land up in severe poverty with failing health and failing fortunes. And this is because trows were not always out to wreak havoc on people. If you were good to them, they would in turn be good to you and they could act as protectors to you and your family. Trows couldn't bear mess and disorder, so people would be sure to leave their homes as clean and orderly before they went to bed as possible, so as not to offend the good folk, which is another name given to the trows. A daffock, which is a bucket or a pail of water, was always left out before bed, in case a trow should come in need of it in the night and people went to great lengths to appease the trows. But it was not always the case that they were harmless or simply mischievous. In some instances, they could be dangerous, and they were regarded with equal amounts of fear and awe. Trows would sometimes take healthy babies and children, and sometimes adults too, leaving in their place an ailing child that was said to be ill-driven. The healthy child was taken away to the trowy now, and the ailing changeling would be all that was left to greet the grief-stricken parents in the morning. For this, a trowy doctor was needed, or a wise woman with the gift of healing powers who could perform a ritualistic-type ceremony to break the trowy spell. Women in their childbirth bed either expecting or postpartum, were in particular danger from the trows, and they should be never under any circumstances left unsupervised for fear that they might be taken by the trows. Some stories report that unattended women were taken and that a dead effigy of the woman was left in her place. 
We have to remember that childbirth at this time was extremely dangerous and many women were lost in childbirth and the days that followed soon after. So this reference to trows may have been a way to explain why an outwardly healthy woman should be taken at this precious time in her life. Modern medicine has much improved mortality rates and, as a result, we see far fewer instances of women and infants or children being taken by the trows. But this doesn't explain the many stories in our folklore of women and children who were reunited with their families many months or even years after they were lost to the trows and replaced with a lifeless changeling. And we hear stories about women who return home to find their husband remarried or again a generation passing. And this same scenario would play out with animals and livestock too, particularly cows, but sometimes sheep as well, where they would become sickly and unwell and you'd have to bring in a trowy doctor to undo the spell. And trows were to be particularly guarded against in the lead up to Yule or the Christmas celebrations, so at this time of the year. At this time they would become particularly active, more demanding and exceedingly mischievous. Yule mit or meat was a particular favourite of the trow and in order to protect the food against them, a steel knife or fork was often left in the flesh of the meat before Yule Day or Christmas Day, as trows could not cross steel. In general, methods to ward away trows were simple. A Bible or steel object would do. If a trow approached you in the hill, the best protection is to take out a knife and draw a circle around yourself. This circle, the trow, cannot enter. And there are those who believe that trows still live in Shetland today. And whether there are or not is not for me to pass comment on. Most of the trows, though, are thought to have left the islands in the latter part of the 19th century, when religious preaching was at its height. The trows couldn't bear religious doctrine, and their preachings are said to have driven most of them away. But who knows? Perhaps a few still live on in the hills today. Okay, so the next creature that we're going to consider is the Nugal. And they are another feature of Shetland's folklore, but much more feared than the Trow. A Nugal is a mythical horse-like creature, kind of similar to the Scottish Kelpie, who lures unsuspecting people onto their winged backs before careering off, carrying them to a watery grave. Nugals are almost always associated with waters, so burns or streams and lochs or just general damp areas such as meadows and marshes. And place names like the Trows often suggest their presence, so we've got Nugals Water in Scalloa and Toft and Nugals Breck in Waz. So the word itself comes from the Old Norse for Nuker, meaning a water nixie, and these words also appear in place names such as Nukra water in Walsa or Nukra water. Millen was an occupation of the winter months which is kind of associated with Nugals and this is where people were believed to have been at the greatest threat to the Nugal. 
Mullen corn was usually done in the dark days of winter or in spring when the burns and logs were full enough of water to power the mill. This time of year saw dark days and very little daylight, increasing the danger and fear of both the trow and, more dangerously, the nugal who haunts these watery places. So nugals were the most dangerous to millin. They would get into the mill's underhouse and stop the turrell. That's the mechanism that drives the millstones. And the only way to rid the nugal from the mill was to throw down a burning peat, where the nugal outside would then disappear with a roar of thunder, a blinding flash and a blue flame. Some men in the Tingwall area are said to have captured the nugal at one time and they chained it to a standing stone. This stone still stands and the chain marks are still visible to this day in the form of quartz veins that run throughout the stone. The stone in question is known as the murder stone and there are many interesting stories associated with it too. It's an upright monolith and it's said to have been erected around about 1389 to mark the spot where a dispute between Malise Sparrow who was Lord of Skeledel, and Henry Sinclair, Earl of Orkney, took place. The stone marks the spot where Spera and seven of his supporters were killed by his cousin Sinclair. Noel Foyet, in his guide um, to prehistoric and Viking Shetland, writes, There is a tale probably recently invented which relates a Norse tradition of a pardon for murderers who could run to the Lotting home to the murder stone unscathed against the efforts of the victim's family and friends. So quite a number of tales associated with this one stone, but as I said, it's thought that a nugal at one time was captured here and chained to the stone. Now we move on to witches and wizards. And there are many stories in Shetland folklore, as is the case around the world, pertaining to witches and wizards. Witches in many ways can be divided into two categories, accepted witches and unaccepted witches. The distinct difference here is in the way that these, usually women, were treated by the community and more importantly, the law. Accepted witches are the focus here. They were women in the community believed to have powers. No favour that these women asked of a neighbour was ever refused for fear of repercussions. They were often avoided, sometimes shunned and periodically sought out in a family's hour of need. But generally, they were always quietly respected and feared in equal measures. Unaccepted witches are those women who were burnt at the stake and who were tried in court for witchcraft and that's kind of a different a different story in many ways um women who for some reason or another were accused tried and punished by death for their beliefs and actions which were believed to be witchcraft but the witches that we'll focus on today are those who were kind of accepted in the community and they were known to have kind of otherworldly powers and there are many stories across Shetland of women with healing powers, those who were able to help an ailing child or animal, particularly if they had come under a trowy spell or curse, as we spoke about earlier. 
These women were generally portrayed in folklore as being older spinsters who lived alone and they have powers that are greater than the everyday being. So in Yell, Lawrence Tullock in his book Shetland Folktales recalls the tale of a woman called Martha Mann, a witch who could cure ailing animals. People came from far and wide to get Martha's help to save their precious animals. Similarly, John Nicholson in Rest and Chair Yarns tells the story of Kitty, who was a woman who was said to be a witch. Kitty was able to transform herself into a bird and visit boats away at the whaling, and she could tell their families how many whales they would have on board and predict their voyage at success, and she could anticipate when they would return from sea. And more often than not, she was right. So these stories are not unusual and similar tales play out across the isles in our folklore and we find really that every community would have had their kind of witch in the community or their healing woman who had these kind of otherworldly powers. And wizards are slightly less prevalent in folklore and kind of again almost otherworldly in their presence. One wizard who appears in folklore was a wizard called Luggie, and he was said to live at a place still known today as Luggie's Now, which is just a few miles from Larwick at Cabister overlooking Dalesfall. And he was said to have been able to make the now that he lived on, so that was a kind of hill or a mound, he was able to make it open up, and from there he was able to just drop his wand into the hole, into the water, and he would catch an abundance of fish. So even on days that the fishermen were unable to go to sea due to bad weather, Luggy was always able to secure a good catch. So witches, wizards, all part of the, the culture and the folklore. We've heard about the trows and the nugals, and now we will move on and consider some of the greater um, giants of our folklore. Giants are another prominent player in tales of Shetland's lore and even today these are the stories that I tell my children as we pass through the places that giants are said to have, have lived. Many of the features of our landscape that today we explain with science and geology were in the past explained in far more imaginative, exciting ways. So when we see boulders in the hill, on their own, standing tall and proud like solitary statues, we know today that these are erratics. They were moved by the power of ice and deposited in the landscape. We know this because geology tells us that, but folklore offers up far more interesting stories that capture the imagination and live on, passing from generation to generation like a treasured heirloom. So out at sea, the rocky scaries and bars or sunken rocks are those that were either thrown by giants from land into the sea or they were carefully placed there so that they could that the giant could fish without getting their feet wet. Folklore tells us that many of these are the result of spates between giants who lived here for many, many years ago. Giants were often quarrelling and squabbling with each other and when things got particularly heated and ugly they would hurl great boulders at each other. 
So as you come into Vaux, there's a, a large erratic that stands by the roadside near the war memorial, a boulder thrown by a giant who lived a few miles south in the Kames. He threw this great boulder in exasperation of the trows, who aimlessly pestered him at Pittawather, about as far from the sea as you can get in Shetland, really in the heart of Trowy land. So the giant lived here alongside the trows. However, they were endlessly harassing him as he tried to sleep. And day and night they hounded him, whispering in his ears and pulling at his whiskers and just generally being really, really annoying. So the giant resolved that he would rid the area of the trows. He was far bigger than they were. He was going to get rid of them. So he made a kishi, which is a straw basket that you carry on your back. And he began to gather up the trows, loading them carefully into the straw kishi. And once he was happy that they were all rounded up, he began to carry them, with the intention of tossing them out to sea, and that would be the end of the trows. Unfortunately for the giant, the cumulative weight of the trows was enough to cause the bottom of the basket to fall out, and the kishi emptied onto the ground, and all the trows fell out and scattered in all directions. Utterly fed up, the giant packed up his bits and pieces and he left. It said that he crossed the North Sea and went to live in Norway, leaving only his footprint in the form of Petawater and a hollow in the hill known as Nifel, where he stopped down and landed, stooped down, sorry, and landed his knee and, of course, that boulder in Vaux that we now know is an erratic. Standing stones, as well as having trowy connotations, are treated in the same way and, rather than being explained by archaeology, are given fanciful and mythical stories. So standing stones are sometimes mar uh, markers, again, of where a giant was caught by the light as night passed into day and he was turned to stone. At the Bjorgsahuster in the North Mainland are two standing stones of kind of rough granite. They're five and a half metres apart and about two metres high, and these are said to mark the grave of a giant. Shetland's most famous giants lived up in the north on the island Unst. They were called Hermann and Saxa, and they were sworn enemies, and each controlled an opposing headland. Hermann on Hermanus and Saxa on Saxaford. Each headland flanked the long inlet or vo at Boroughfirth. These two giants quarrelled all the time, and the evidence of those quarrels exists to this, to this day in the form of Saxa's Ba and Hermann's Heliac, uh, a Ba being a sunken rock in the sea and a heliac, that means the, the flat rock. Both giants were said to be in love with a mermaid, who was a real temptress, she was said to be a real beauty. She lured them both into the water, challenging them to follow her and swim all the way to the North Pole. She said that the one who could swim after her and meet her there would win her heart. Neither giant could swim, and both were drowned. And that was the end of Hermann and Saxa, although they still live on in the names of the headlands that they once dominated. Another story 
involves an area near Colliforth, North Maven, uh, that's called the Meshiest Stains. And folklore tells us that a giant was transporting stones to Yell, to the island of Yell, in a meshy, which is a kind of net made from bent or floss that's designed for carrying corn or hay. And when he went to make the jump across Yell Sound onto the island of Yell, the handles of his meshy, or his kind of bag that he, that he was carrying the stones in, gave way, so spilling the contents out onto the landscape. And that's still known as the Meshiest Stains. And further up through the hill, the Giant's Garden offers a large green space in the kind of otherwise tundra-like debris of stone that punctuates the landscape of this area. Another story involves the notorious V-Scaries, which is a rocky outcrop of stones off Shetland's west coast that have seen many shipwrecks over the years. And it's said to have been made by a giant called Atla. And Atla lived in Weasel. And he would kind of while away the day amusing himself by hurling great boulders many miles out to sea. And where his boulders landed eventually went on to form what we now know as the V Scaries. Okay, so the next in our look at Shetland folklore is silkies or seals. So there was a widespread belief that silkies or seals could take the form of a human by casting off their seal skins which were left hidden on the beach until their return. Often seals would come ashore and dance by the moonlight on secluded beaches but on other occasions they would use this innate power to lure a human mate back to the sea. Often posing as, more often than not, a handsome, shipwrecked sailor, these silkies in the guise of a man would knock at the door of a house, usually on a dark and stormy night. Late at night, they would gain entry to the house by seeking shelter and abide for the night and invariably would seduce the maiden of the house. They would then disappear with the woman, returning to sea in the form of seals once more. Similarly, stories exist that tell of how a seal skin is stolen, usually from a beach and hidden away somewhere so that usually the maiden of exceptional beauty who shed her skin can be kept in the human world and married off. These seal women were always described as having big, dark, known eyes that were tainted by sadness. They would often wander along the shore gazing longingly out to sea, mourning their silky lives. Often these women would raise a family on land and invariably stories tell us how they discover their hidden seal uh, their hidden seal skin and they make the tough decision to abandon their human children to return back to their seal lover at sea. Seal mothers who have lost sons or daughters to the human world are often seen to hold vigil on the shoreline, awaiting their return. On the island of Papa Stewart, there's the story of a man who is seal hunting on the notorious V-scaries that we've just spoken about with the giants. When a gale of wind was whipped up, he was unable to get back to the boat 
so the crew left him on the V-Scary. He was destined to perish on the exposed rock, had it not been for the intervention of a silky, the very being that he was hunting. So this seal approached him and offered him a ride back to the island and safety in return that the man retrieve his wife's seal skin to allow her to return to the sea. And the man was true to his word and he gave the seal skin back, enabling the woman to return to the water as a selkie. And it said that he never ever hunted another seal ever again. And sometimes women would seek a seal lover. And to do this, the woman had to shed seven tears into the sea at high tide. And this would beckon the seal to the shore where, again, invariably, they would fall deeply in love and she would be taken away out to sea. And this association that marks seals as almost human-like could in part come from their kind of deep, almost all-seeing eyes. The eyes of a seal are very human-like and their inquisitiveness and curiosity of humans is clear to anybody that's spent any time on the shoreline or by the sea. Seals occupy a liminal place with much of their lives lived between land and sea. Common seal pups are born on the tide line between low and high tide. So they're born when the tide is low and they're forced to swim with the rising water. And this association with this kind of liminal space between land and sea has perhaps helped to mark them out as almost otherworldly and given them a solid root in folklore. Sticking to the water, um, the next we're going to think about is sea creatures and monsters who have also played a prominent role in culture and folklore. Unsurprising given the island's historic dependence and proximity to the sea. The sea was a food source, plentiful and abundant, but it was also a dangerous expanse, shrouded in mystery with unknown sea creatures lurking below the waters. In days before modern weather forecasting, fishermen depended almost entirely on their senses, and freak weather was often explained by a higher power. In the case of sudden storms or freak waves, these were usually blamed on witchcraft and the work of someone who wanted to do the boat and or a member of the crew an ill turn. So the sea was a dangerous highway for the men who went to the fishing or used it for transport, and there are many stories, unsurprisingly, from the folklore associated with the sea. Tehran is a spirit of the sea that rages gales in spring and autumn, what we today would recognise as the equinox gales, and which are explained by meteorology and science. But Tehran was a dangerous force who would be fought by the sea mither, or mother. The sea mother would generally conquer Tehran in spring, causing the spirit to sink back into the sea, where it would lie dormant on the ocean floor, 
allowing for a summer of fishing, but come autumn, Tehran would usually spring to life again, conquering the sea mither once more and rule throughout the winter, kicking the sea into a boiling fury until the sea mither was able to find the strength to defeat it again in the spring. Sea creatures usually took the form of serpents or monsters from the deep and could be catastrophic, if not deadly, to fishermen at sea, particularly those at the half or deep sea fishery many miles from land. And quite often when boats were lost and the crew were lost on an otherwise fine day, then their loss was often pinned on an otherworldly force from the sea. A tale from 1881 is passed to us from the crew of a boat called the Bertie, a line fishing boat who came into contact with a sea monster. While hauling lines, the crew reported that they saw the hump of an animal, believed initially to be a whale at first sighting, but as it came closer to the boat, two more humps appeared in the water, and then the shoulders and head emerged, bearing menacing dark eyes that rose from the water. It was covered in trailing lines of seaweed, and despite the crew throwing ballast from the boat and firing bullets at the beast, it still came closer to the 45-foot boat. Their efforts to ward off the beast were to no avail, and before long it raised its great tail, raining it down on the water with a mighty clap like thunder and a great wave. Hurriedly cutting the lines, the crew of the Bertie turned tail and made towards the shore. The great beast followed them for a time, but eventually the boat outran it. They were unable to recover their fishing gear, but they were thankful to have escaped the beast with their lives and their boat still intact. The crew estimated that the beast was bigger than their 45-foot boat, and they were sure that they had experienced no ordinary creature of the sea. And other sea monsters are recorded in the folklore, including the Kraken and the Bregde, feared by those who went to sea. The Kraken was a sea serpent, and the Bregde, or Sul Bregde, was a monster that would lie on the water, sunning its great body in the sun, hence the name coming from Seoul. And it would often chase boats. It had long fins that would envelop the boat, carrying the crew away to a watery grave. And it was even thought that the sea serpent controlled the tides, drawn in a breath for six hours before releasing it again. <laughs> That concludes our whistle stop tour of our island's folklore and the many mythical creatures that inhabit our islands. So we've met trows and yugals, giants, silkies, mermaids and sea monsters. All of these have given rise to a rich folklore in Shetland that lives on today in our music, our literature and our poetry. So I hope you've enjoyed today's show and until next time. Goodbye. Thank you for listening. This podcast can only be made possible by my supporters on Patreon. So a huge thank you to all my patrons. 
If you would like to support me in bringing you more of these shows, you can sign up and become a patron. You will find details about how to sign up in the show notes below or at www.patreon.com and just search Shetland with Laurie. And remember, you can find more on Instagram and give me a follow at Shetland with Laurie. So thank you once again for listening and we will see you here next time. And in the meantime, safe and happy travels. <laughs>